Hi, and welcome back to Stand Partners for Life. I'm Nathan Cole, and I am finally, this uh, this summer, I guess it's already fall, this fall, joined by my actual Stand Partner for Life, Akiko. Hello. And we're out enjoying a fine Pasadena evening with actually another pair of Stand Partners for Life, Kate Reddish, her husband Eric Lee, who are both violists and wear other hats as well, as, as I guess we all do. But thank you, Kate and Eric, for being here with us. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, Kate, if you've been listening, you'll know is not only a violist and not only a uh, proud Virtuoso Master Course alum, but also director of operations for the Virtuoso Master Course, the VMC. And so we're going to get a chance to talk today about um, our work together on that, but yeah, I think we're going to start with the stand partner for life concept, and uh, yeah, why do musicians meet other musicians, and uh, well, we know why they meet, why do they stay with them? <laughs> um, Especially a couple of violists. <laughs> we're getting existential real early. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we've covered, Akiko and I have covered how we met, how we got to know each other some of those ups and downs and all that so let, let's uh let's actually jump right to how you find folks met and um then actually uh, you were just about to tell me and i made you stop you were just to about to tell me how you kate met akiko out here at music academy of the west but let, let's start with uh, you and eric and maybe take us back a little bit to just before you met what was going on and the year <laughs> was 2000 Four? Three? Four? <laughs> the, <laughs> we're going to take you back to a time now when we were both nightmares of people uh, in our late 20s. <laughs> Mid-20s. <laughs> Mid to late 20s. <laughs> so we met at USC. Uh, we were both studying viola there, albeit with different teachers. And we met uh, via the same channels that you meet anybody at music school, which is pretty much every minute of time you spend with everybody else in music school. <laughs> We liked each other then. Neither of us, uh, neither of us really acted on it, which ends up being great because it would have been terrible back then. Like, like disaster zone for real. I was so drawn to Eric. He was so edgy. He had a black leather jacket and like a five o'clock shadow, and he smoked. So, um, so anyway, yeah. So I, I, you know, he would be the one at the party, like crouched in the corner on the balcony with a drink and a cigarette and uh, and I was like sign me up for that <laughs> it had to work at least once <laughs> it, well it did except it took um how many years it took a good seven years I think from from first meeting to actual uh going on a date that wasn't a date because we were very very like stridently not dating for, for six months not dating we were both fresh out of relationships, and both of us sort of didn't want to dip our toe back in the water, even though it was obvious that we probably should in this instance. <laughs> I called him my non-boyfriend for almost a year. <laughs> yeah, wow, and this now is like a, is this a viola pace kind of thing? Is, is that versus the violin? I, f I feel like we had the, the fast track, except we had a long layoff after we first met. Yeah, but we don't, we don't have, we don't have their like instant chemistry thing. <laughs> yeah. So the long layoff made even more sense. Or <laughs> well, there was the seven years of not having any contact whatsoever. And then he looked me up on um, Facebook and he had a weird last name and I didn't know who he was. 
And so um, his name was Eric Summer. And I'm like, he looks kind of like Eric Lee from back when I was in school. I need friends. I just broke up with someone. And so then we, we hung out at night. And then the rest is history. It's been like 14 years. What, I want to hear about this fake name, though. <laughs> oh, okay. So I used to, for a, for a time, I used to play in a lot of bands um, in and around L.A. and some tours and stuff like that. Um, it was it was the dumbest of flukes, but it for some reason fit at the time. Um, the person who wanted to ask me to be in his band got uh, my number from a mutual friend, and I was living somewhere else during the summer, so he had me in his phone as Eric parentheses summer, and so yeah, we like I I joined the band, learned the songs. Uh, he he showed me the flyer for the first gig, and I was like, why is my last name Summer? But then uh, also. I kind of liked it. It sounded good. It was a little bit ironic because I'm, I'm, I tend towards the prickly a lot of the time and, and the, the negative. Um, and also, my last name is confusing to people pronunciation-wise. I get Leah. I get Lay. Nobody ever really settles on Lee first time. Oh, I, I, I thought you were going to say that people are just, they don't know that, that you're not Asian. Oh, Maybe there's even they like get really confused or annoyed or that has happened as well. <laughs> right now it is as you can see in the the show notes as I'm sure you've already checked, but yeah, L E A. So, which and is a meadow. It's and you're Scottish. Yeah, it's Scottish for meadow, and oh. also you will probably see in in the show notes in my bio. Um, it says that I'm extremely Caucasian. That's like the first line, right? Extremely Caucasian. Eric Lee is an extremely Caucasian violist. <laughs> well, it's, it's like Donna Chang in Seinfeld. Exactly. <laughs> now, were both of you at that point full-time professional violists? Were you performing, teaching? What was the the story as far as the instrument? At that time, I was yeah, I was in the throes of my the height of my freelance career. <laughs> um, yeah, so performing full-time. I don't know if I was ever teaching that much. And that was still out here? That was L.A.? Yes, yes. In fact, I had just I had just done a session for Barbra Streisand and then went came downtown to do a rehearsal of um, the Mendelssohn, what's the oratorio? Elijah. Elijah, um, with, with Master Crowell. And so I'd, I was feeling, like, pretty good about myself, like, like, you know, this is a woman with a career and I'm going to meet this man that I used to have a crush on at Kendall's. And um, oh. yeah, yeah. And we ended up talking for like four hours. We closed that place down. <laughs> and then, you know, didn't date for another six months. Wow. And Eric, what were you up to at this point? Well, I'm a weird one. Um, the idea of a career in music and I have never gotten along super well for various reasons. Um, I've always been sort of on the periphery of that idea. I've discovered many, many things about myself over the pandemic. And one of, the, one of those things uh, that is shocking to me now, shouldn't have been the entire time, is that I don't love performing. I like it. I like it fine. Um, I, I suspect I'm not alone in this. I sometimes like performing. Well... <laughs> What I really, really love doing is making stuff, but that was never presented as an option for me growing up, I don't think. So I just never branched into it until I had two years of nothing but time. So yeah, at the time that we, at the time that we met, I, th I, I think I was probably still playing in a lot of bands 
I was not too many years away from burning out on that entirely. Still doing the odd gig as I as I still do. Like I I, I do enjoy the freedom of being able to do it on my own terms and and when I feel like it and not being beholden to the freelance grind. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I I was working then mainly. Um, as I do now uh, at a video game company, um, which is a, a, a job that I that does not demand much of me and I'm very good at without having to uh, invest a portion of my identity in it. It's uh, it's it's kind of the ultimate uh, the ultimate job for someone like me. God, that's amazing. So, Eric, I am curious about this uh, touring band life or, you know, I don't know how much you actually toured outside LA but what was that like and first of all what were you I can't imagine you were playing viola in the band I was I I was wow. playing viola in all of the I I um <laughs> there was this rock and roll scene that I was sort of a part of around 2004 5 so I hung out there weekly um, and everybody in the bands got to know me as a person who played the viola so I I I ended up getting uh getting asked to play viola on the albums and of, of numerous bands. Uh, I didn't know what I was doing, but I sort of sort of figured it out because I would, you know. I just need to interject here for a minute because Eric, okay, Eric does not enjoy performing, but Eric knows more about music than most people I know. And not just classical music, although he's, he's just got an intensely like full body love of classical music but also pop music and rock music and indie music. And so he says he doesn't know what he was doing, but he could um, he could pick out like the voice leading of any like ELO or Beatles or anything like he, he knows um, and he can sing and play like he'll play, be playing his part and singing in perfect harmony with his choir boy voice. <laughs> so um, I just don't buy it when he says he doesn't know what he's doing. Well, thank you for that. Uh, it didn't. Well, and here's an, here's another here's another thing that always has been uh, a, a bit of a stumbling block for me. I didn't. I assumed I didn't know what I was doing because I hadn't studied it. And that's that's a thing that you can take away from music school is the idea that if you haven't gone to school for something, you innately don't know how to do it right. Uh, which is which is what I thought at that point. So yeah, so I started playing with a lot of bands. There was, there's one in particular um, that I played with quite a bit. Uh, they had, they had a, a couple of songs on, for instance, if you've seen Grey's Anatomy, you've probably heard my viola playing in some capacity. Cool. <laughs> wow, I actually, uh, my sister who was a nurse, I, I think she watched that for, and that would, because you're on the theme song? No, but we did get several, I think it was something like 10 or 11 licenses on that show. Two or three of the songs got licensed for multiple episodes, and then they had a they had a musical episode, um, and and they picked one of those songs to do to to reorchestrate and and do on the musical episode as well, and we actually played their tenth season rap party. <laughs> you can so believe cool. that. Now, when you said you burned out on that, uh, yeah, what what got kind of tiresome with all of that? Well, it. It became it was it was from the beginning it was not particularly lucrative, um, but in addition it also eventually became not fun. Um, there's a there's a similar grind that happens you know with that kind of music too where you like you know you're playing at a, a random bar on a Thursday and it's 
hard to engage the audience. And like part of it is just, you know, it can get very not fun. So <laughs> on the advice, I had one of my favorite comedians did a did a a YouTube show for a little while. And somebody in the audience asked him about doing stand up and when like how long do you have to do it? When do you quit? Like I'm I'm making money. I'm still having fun. But when do you when do you step out? And he was like, well, if you're still if you're still making money or having fun, then yeah, absolutely keep doing it. But if if you're not making money or having fun, then absolutely quit. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's exactly what I'm not doing right now. And, and then what happened when you quit playing in the bands? Eric went on. I'm going to answer for him. Um, <laughs> Eric went on a, a. He kind of went into like a deep time of self-study and then composition study. Yes, that was when I decided, when I had nothing else to lose, <laughs> I truly did not care anymore and thought I was probably going to quit. I went through a period where I call this my big existential crisis of 2013, <laughs> where I, I just thought, yeah, I think I'm done. Um, in the <laughs> in the ensuing months, it, it slowly became apparent to me that I wasn't done, but something needed to change because I was truly not happy the way things were. So... So I f it finally occurred to me in my late 30s, should have occurred to me maybe when I was about eight, uh, that maybe, maybe I wanted to write stuff. And because of what we have discussed about my brain, my brain needs to believe that I have formally studied something in order to allow myself leverage to do it. So, so I started reading every composition book I could get my hands on. Um, I read all of the, the basic theory and harmony books, uh, even some of the real, real old ones like Zarlino. And, uh, and then I started reading Hindemith's uh, composition books. Uh, and then it turned out he had a book on, on uh, just his general theory. He had a book on two-part writing. And then he also had a book on three-part writing, which was never translated into English. Uh, so I thought, I need to know what is in that book. I took German for about seven years. I know his terminology. We're translating this book now, and so I did that. So you, you German, you knew already. You didn't learn German for seven years just to. <laughs> no, no. Oh, I, 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 yeah, I thought there was a chance that you decided, like next seven years German. <laughs> no, no, no. That, Although, yeah, that would be on brand. <laughs> I guess it would, uh, but no. I'd, I'd studied German all throughout high school and and partway through college. I was a couple of credits away from like a German major. Um, uh. Oh, cool. So I, I hadn't used it in a while, but I thought uh, I can I can probably make some sense of this, and and so I did, and so I learned that I learned all that information, and then and then eventually, very very eventually, because my brain's weird, transitioned into well maybe I'm ready to try doing this now, maybe. And by this you mean composing? Yeah. Uh, at the time it was it was. Just a very, very trepidatious, what would happen if I wrote, I don't know, a song, something, anything, something short, something I can wrap my head around formally, you know, anything. So I started doing that, and, I, and it, it turns out that I, I really, really love doing that, which in today's musical climate is like, it's, it's like I am stranded in equatorial New Guinea, and I find out that the thing that I really love to do is make these intricately crafted wool sweaters. <laughs> there is no need for it and no interest in it, but I really, really like doing it. That uh, sometimes sounds like uh, classical music as a, as a whole, but... 
<laughs> absolutely true. Wow. And now at this point, um, you two were together? Or does this fall in the in-between? No, we're together. This, we've been together f- about four or five years, I think, by this point. What's it, um, what was it, like 2009 when we finally admitted we were dating? It was late 2009, yeah. Yeah, and then we got married in... 2016, the best year in American history. (laughs) (laughs) February 29th, 2016, for those who want to send us well wishes the next week here. (laughs) Well, so how much discussion, I mean, because as as we know very well, you know, what one of us does is going to affect the other one. I mean, from everything from all the minor day-to-day stuff to these major career decisions, I mean, how much back and forth was there or was it just kind of like you know this is this is what I need to do and you know same for you Kate in terms of when you started scaling back in your freelancing um, for each of you was it just kind of like this is what needs to happen for me so the other one's good with it I think I think we're both so intimately aware of the struggle that we've we've both really had each other's backs throughout throughout those those various sort of t- times of transition because i mean uh, especially in la freelancing is hard and it's it's hard without any without any clear goal without any clear signs of progress you 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 can you kind of make them up for yourself as you go along you know after music school you don't have the the marker of okay i'm going to get a degree now or i'm going to play a recital now it's more like well I got called for this one gig. I guess that's, I guess that means I'm at level 13, and, and then I, but I didn't get called for this other gig, so maybe I'm knocked back down to level 12. So like, yeah, knowing, knowing the vicissitudes of that whole lifestyle, I think, I think both of us, and correct me if I'm wrong, cowgirl, mm-hmm. um, both of us have have been like, <laughs> if if you want to try a different version of this, you go right ahead. <laughs> Yeah, I would I would say I mean Eric has a full-time date like a day job um that as he said you know he can kind of do with a lot of ease. And so um and that's provided us some stability um in the very unstable freelancing market. Um when I was in my kind of heyday of freelancing, I you know, I was doing well, but I I went to every job feeling like a fraud and left every job worried that I wasn't going to get called again. And that's a really familiar feeling for me. And it's also like kind of an exhausting existence. And so what happened um, when I started scaling back, I mean, really, it was when when everything shut down for COVID and Nathan had, I was already working with Nathan, but he wanted to launch the Violympics and asked for my help. And that was a much bigger project in terms of my involvement. Um, prior to that, I had been just, you know, sending emails and doing some scheduling and annotating videos. And um, I really got to see the most incredible thing unfold. Like COVID had happened, everything shut down. I was living up in Cambria with my mom and sister because I was quarantining up there. And um, this community was blossoming around Nathan and the Violympics. And I felt 
Like I never feel on stage. I felt like I was actually contributing to something and um, doing something that mattered where I don't ever, ever feel that way when I play the viola, which is like, I hate saying that, but like, <sighs> yeah, I mean, and I want to feel that way when I play the viola. I, I want to feel like, like I remember um, going to this bagel shop and there was a rabbi and his wife there and I had my viola case on my back. And as I was leaving, he said, thank you for bringing joy to the world. And I thought that was like so beautiful and also so like discordant in my heart. So um, I think Eric, I mean, Eric just wants me to be happy. And so, um, and he, he can see like how much happier I am doing this work, even though I, I still love um, playing, but it's so great to be able to say no to things and to, you know, not do the the jobs that I know are going to, um, you know, like, what is it that like needs to, the, the money has to be good and the paying has to be good or the um, music artistic. So it's artistic hang or money and like it has to be two out of the three. So I got, I was, I'm empowered to really just actually take the ones that are all three, which is awesome. I mean, we, we talk about this a lot too, whether, I mean, even just within the classical performance realm, you know, Akiko d deciding to play chamber music or to to do this job and, uh, you know, whether it involves travel and some freelancing, which is not all classical. I mean, what, what are some of the, I don't know, decisions in the last few years that you can think of, Akiko, where, right, I mean, we... Because there's a lot we don't get to decide playing an orchestra, right? We get told what to play and pretty much how to play it. Yeah, I mean, I think there are definitely times now where I think it's, it's you know, we've got to start, yeah, really thinking about things maybe more in terms of a, of a pros and cons checklist. And you take, you know, take that seriously. Because I do that and I think, but if I say no, mm -hmm. is it, you know, is it going to, am I going to get shut out of something else? It's like this weird dysfunctional FOMO, right? Mm -hmm. That's still, it's still, you know, I think it's my personality. I just, I'm very easily sucked in by, by that mentality. So, you know, it's still hard, but I'm starting to get better. It just, I think, we, you know, looking at my kids too, it's like, well, they're really rapidly changing and, it, and it, you know, it's hard for me to, to think about missing any part of that, even though you necessarily do, but, um, but you know, to try to miss less of it would be nice. So hopefully it's going to be a motivation, but I, I still struggle with getting the right balance and, and, you know, and, and the things that are not good for my psyche still, for some reason, I can't say no, you know, mm. <laughs> it's just a, so I'm like several steps behind like the process you described. We were like, this is not good. This is not healthy. <laughs> I really relate to that. I mean, I, I'll get calls for things that have a cachet to them or, you know, getting called for them. It's really nice to be invited to the party. And when you are invited to the party occasionally, for me at least, all I could think about were the times I wasn't getting invited. Um, and so when I do, it's hard to say no. I had a situation come up recently where I had something on the books and then, you know, the schedule changed. And in order to accommodate their schedule change, it would have meant a triple for me in the middle of a launch. And I didn't want to do that. 
And so I said, well, I'm available for the morning, like I have always been. And they're like, oh, we're, we're not splitting it. It's like, okay, you know. And Neither am I. It, well, yeah, I'm like, let me know if you need me for the morning, because I'm still available in the morning. Um, and that means that I get to go home and, like, do work, other work, work, you know, work that actually makes me feel good about myself <laughs> and rest and have a good dinner and then go play creation. That's that's a pretty great day. Like, to rest and have a good dinner, like, it seems obvious, and yet it's just, like, you, just, you think that's, like, well, I can let that go. You know, I can I can rest later, or <laughs> the dinner can just be, like, you know, whatever. But, yeah, if you actually can take care of that stuff, and that's, like, you you definitely feel the difference in your in your quality of life. Yeah, there's there's only so long you can put that stuff off. And then <laughs> it's another it's another one of those things too where your job becomes your identity while you're not looking and and then everything is tied to your performance in a job that you mm. like and a lot of it you don't have much control over. So at least I don't know how you guys feel about that, but but like I out of music school, I felt like a failure all the time because I had somehow internalized the idea that my only value was in working in this career path that I had chosen when I was 18. Yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, you know, playing in an orchestra, you're noticed the most when you, you when you stick out, right? When you do something wrong. So yep. the, the, a lot of times the best you can hope for is never to be noticed. And uh, that is, that makes it, tough to step out right when you do have a solo or a chamber piece to play and suddenly you hear your own musical voice and like yikes where has that been what <laughs> like hearing your voice on a recording like we're doing now um and yeah you know the constantly being told you know conductors aren't known for throwing around a lot of compliments usually especially to the strings who are <laughs> right under their ears and easy to beat up on we talk about this all the time um I know you've got something to say about that. No, I just, I, I, you know, I think you start seeing yourself. It's just hard to see yourself in a number of different ways. And um, if you're trying to see yourself as that person who's great at blending in and fitting, and then, then you want to see yourself as the person who's going to stand out and, and be a star. Like, they just seem sort of irreconcilable. You know, and I think we struggle with that, you know, a lot. I'm curious what it's like... Um, Eric, to have a job where you don't feel like it's tied to your identity. That sounds very... <laughs> like, wait, what is this thing you talk about? <laughs> it's, uh, I guess it was, it was a little bit conscious. Like, okay, I've played video games for a very long time. I like video games. I don't love video games. So this is a, a like, this can be a sort of calculated risk and see what, see what happens when I have a job that I like but don't love. So you know that Nathan's really into video games, right? I did not know that, Oh, I don't yeah, think. so you guys, I feel like this is... I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. This is a whole other podcast then. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, so I, I've, I've got some things to ask about this. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I, I, I started the video game job in around 2006. It's um, it's with a Japanese company, so so basically what, what my job is and was was to... Um, check English translations of games developed in Japan. But I found I found pretty quickly that it was it was enjoyable. I was sort of effortlessly good at it because language has always been my my other thing um besides besides viola. And so it, it took a lot of the pressure off. Um pressure that I had pretty much always felt from from maybe 14 on that like 
you need to earn a living immediately and you need to not stop doing that and uh, and 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 also you have picked this industry that is very very difficult to do that in um and by the way you have picked one of the hardest cities in the world to do it <laughs> so yeah so that that just took a little of the pressure off and it enabled me to this is you know like around the time i was playing with a lot of bands like that was a thing that I enjoyed at the time, so I, I could do that whenever I wanted. And, and, and at, the, uh, at the beginning of the job, at least, I could, I could take a month off and do a national tour with a, with a band. Or our friend Mike Viola and I did a, a little mini tour of Japan in about 2012. Uh, it was about a week and a half, and we, we went to, to four cities in Japan. And it was great, and I was able to do it. So that it freed me up monetarily and creatively, really, in a way. And, you know... It, a few years down the line is when our paths crossed and you know i i you came into my orbit as a violist and i didn't know any of these other things about you which is is so funny that you know i i thought i'm gonna i'm just gonna help eric play the viola better and then then i got to know you much more as a person and uh you know get to know all these other sides of you what were your thoughts how did you find me and and decide that you know you wanted to pursue because you you were part of the second virtuoso master course right so i had seen i had seen kate's progress in the first vmc um and just watching from the sidelines watching her do that um it sounded incredible and it just it was i i just thought for the first time in a very long time like, oh this is this is something that i would really like to do and this is a, a kind of instruction that i kind of have never had before um, but have probably always needed. I feel like my my teachers in uh, in undergrad and graduate school they were they were great, um, and I learned a lot from them. And I do not regret studying with them at all because they they were they were responsible for you know like the entirety of my technique up to that point. But also I I sort of think that during that time I was kind of difficult. <laughs> and I figure, I, I, I think they maybe didn't quite know what to make of me. <laughs> so it was not their problem. It was mine. Um, but VMC2 rolls around. I'm a little more mature, a little bit leveled out, a little bit more uh, in tune with what I might actually want as a musician. It seemed like precisely the right fit for the time. We were talking about sort of making up milestones for yourself and and one of the ones that I had done after my sort of existential crisis was I decided I wanted to at least try and take an audition like uh, I set myself a goal for like 2014 I'll take an audition this year and I think I ended up taking three just because I had always been historically not very good at auditioning which I at the time wrote off as just uh, I let myself off the hook. Mm. Um, it, it was just me telling myself, I'm just not very good at this mm. um, audition, so I just won't take them. Um, but after my, my sort of sort of comeback in about 2014, I, I started thinking, well, this doesn't need to be something that I'm bad at. Um, it's not like mm. <laughs> it's not like my my initial thought where everybody has a an ability cap, and I had just hit mine. It was more, it was more like. Um, no, maybe if we uh, if we work a little harder at this in the right way, maybe I can uh, give it a shot. Uh, and so that was that was kind of where I was psychologically by the time VMC two rolled around, and I and I started thinking, well, yeah, I 
I've seen what Kate did in this program. I I could absolutely improve under this style of um, style of education, and I did. Mm-hmm. I, like I I I think that the program was what six months back then. That's right. Yeah. So within those six months, I did at least three things that I had assumed previously that I was incapable of. I I learned a Paganini Caprice. I learned the entirety of of Schwanendreer, which is a concerto that I only sort of like half learned before. Um, and I, what was the other thing? I, there was at least one more big goal that I didn't think, oh, this was after Violympics. Um, Travis was talking about doing like subsequent Violympic style challenges. And I did the same thing with the movements of this Vaughn Williams suite, two of the movements of which I had just sort of given up on as an undergrad, just thinking, eh, my technique isn't, isn't good enough for this and never will be. But I, I did both of them and, and, and I found that I could. So yeah, it was, it was, those six months were a revelation for me. So cool. I, I always feel like I'm, I'm the person, I'm the before, like the, <laughs> like all the questions that you lay out, I'm always like, like, yeah, well, so what? <laughs> like, What's it to you? Oh, you mean when I'm, uh, when I'm writing to or, uh, talking to perspective <laughs> no it's, it's it's like exactly what eric's saying where it's like did, did you did you think you could never do this i'm like yeah so <laughs> what's well, i mean it's funny the the sort of uh when you talk about milestones or tests i mean i when i take time off and i come back I, we've talked about this too akiko you know that you start practicing again um and there are all these i want to test myself you know can i still play this can i still do this um there are these things that we feel like we we have to be able to do to be a quote you know a real violinist or a real musician mm-hmm. and you know once you can do those things then i think you you move the goalposts unconsciously right it's like well sure i can do that but can i do it under pressure and then it's you know can i do it every time without ever making a mistake um mm-hmm. and can i do it and feel comfortable and feel great while I'm doing it and you know we I've been surprised talking to some of the soloists um you know often when they're guests at in the VMC if they come and do a guest class and they talk about performing and how often they're not really feeling <laughs> feeling the flow and they're they're just kind of getting through it you know in the hopes that some other day will be more comfortable but I always think that's a whole other level too right like when you can how you're feeling you're confident that that's not correlating with you know what's going to come out that you know that's just sort of a transient thing and that the the result is still solid you know that that's like i feel like that's just like so that's really another plane of performance existence you know it takes a lot of performing too i would think i mean we think neither of us gets to play the same repertoire enough to really you know kind of play the the higher level game you know where you're you know the piece and then you're practicing the performance aspect of it I guess it's like everything else like getting comfortable in front of these microphones too <laughs> which, uh, well you guys are rocky fans yeah oh yeah there there's a there's a bit in the first movie that i always really really relate to where uh Apollo Creed's manager comes to Rocky and offers him the the Creed fight 
um, and he turns it down and he, he, he says, no, I'm really just a ham and egger. I have no idea what the derivation of that phrase is, but I have always known exactly what he meant by it. And that's, that's absolutely how I've always thought of myself as a violist. It's just, yeah, I'm a, I'm a ham and egger. Um, you know, it's like just kind of a workmanlike craftsman, like blue collar jobber, you know? Yeah, I love, I mean, there, I could go on <laughs> for every line in that movie. Um, I don't know. Ham and egg sounds like a compliment. That's like ham and eggs is delicious. <laughs> right? I feel like, yeah. I th- yeah, I think there's supposed to be a, you know, you, 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 you kind of take pride, pride in that, right? Like you, you show up, you, you punch the clock. You, you <laughs> yeah, you, you do your job. You no, but that sounds even like it's more delicious than that. that that's like, <laughs> that's like dry toast. Like, <laughs> I anyway. think that's coming from a perspective of like L.A., like you would never do ham and eggs on a regular basis because <laughs> you know it's like such a treat. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, that, that's true. In other parts of in other parts of the world, people eat ham and eggs every day. I really think of myself as an avocado toaster. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna change with the times. Well, I mean this this whole idea of changing your perception of yourself. Um, I mean that that can really make all the differences not not an exaggeration to say that i mean you can have all the same abilities we even i mean the phrase i always hear you say akiko is it must be nice um often (laughs) (laughs) you know uh, and often we'll say that when we i think that often too (laughs) (laughs) about nathan just just trail off it's just like so obvious now all i have to say is yeah it must be nice nice, yeah (laughs) well i'm thinking of you know when we hear someone play or see someone play you know, who maybe doesn't have all the tools and we we don't know if they know that or not because the impression they give is that they love performing and they love doing it. And, you know, they've got enough to get by and, and to bring it off with an audience. And, you know, you and I may say, well, we could never function like that. Like we have to we have to feel like we've got all the equipment and then some just to mm-hmm. to make the journey. Yeah, and you know, recently I'm I'm realizing like how horrible it is to not have the right confidence. If you have the confidence, you can. It's like a whole separate thing, you know. If you have that confidence, it's like your your whole life is different. You think that that confidence is going to come from working harder, playing better, and that's only really partially true, or even very, you know. I think it's just if you that confidence is, is a separate category, and if you have that, it's you just you know. There's an ease with which even, you know, you know, the things that you're doing, even if they're not perfect, it, it doesn't seem to bother you because you're confident, you know, and, and that's something mm-hmm. that I've, I've really struggled with not having and, and just feeling constantly if I just, just work a little harder, I'm going to get there and it doesn't because you have to work on that separately. I think confidence might be um, overrated or misunderstood. Like it's just recently, I mean, and having a, having the ability to, to back off from performing um, for a living. It's just recently coming, because basically my entire life, I started playing viola when I was 10. Ever since then, I've thought, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. And maybe if, like a a thought comes up often in rehearsal when I miss something, I think I'll have to practice that. Mm. And recently I've had a different, you know how people are always like, well, but you're 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 obviously like you're in the LA Phil, so obviously you're good. Like, you know, I always like bristle at that because I feel 
like, you know, no matter what I'm getting called for, I'm still not good. Maybe they just think I'm nice or they are feeling sorry for me or something like that. <laughs> That's why they gave you a contract in LA Phil. But um, <laughs> I, so recently I've been thinking um, from a different perspective. Like, I am good at this. Otherwise I wouldn't be here because everyone else here is amazing. I had this experience on a um, movie uh, thing recently. Oh, that that we were both on, where like, you know, the brass were just like, the brass were incredible. I was just blown away. It was so exciting to hear them be so amazing. And and then looking around and everyone else is amazing, and I'm there too. So um, so then like, okay, the things I'm hearing in my head as being so awful must not be awful, which is. Okay, so I don't know if I'm making any sense going from the confidence to that, um, but that it's been an interesting perspective shift to show up to work to viola work, coming from a like rather than looking for the evidence that I suck to um, I don't know looking for evidence that I belong. The interesting thing about that too is although we both separately have our our feelings of I'm not good enough and I don't belong here. I never think that about you, and I imagine you—you you might, you—you you probably don't think that about me. Yeah, maybe, maybe like fifty-fifty, yeah, but most of the time, you don't think that about me. I'm your biggest fan. <laughs> I knew. Thank you. Well, Kate, I mean, in the work that you do now in the Virtuoso Master Course, I mean, you—you you see all the time how people's mindset shifts will actually tangibly change the way they play and and that's important too but I mean it also changes the the way they go about their lives and the the artistic decisions they make and in some cases those decisions might be to perform less and to teach more or to create you know write music or arrange music um I mean can you think of you know whether whether we want to share names or not. I mean, can you think of some some cases recently in this virtuoso master course that we're just finishing? So many, so many. Like immediately. Well, I mean, I will say Travis and Kirsten both because we have podcasts with them. Kirsten, both of them, just such ex- extraordinary human beings. Nathan attracts the best people for real. Um, well, but, I've got one of them next to me. So. Aww. <laughs> Um, (laughs) um, I'm thinking of one person who within the first couple months of VMC completely restructured her studio her teaching studio she more than doubled her prices and basically like it's like we got to see her go from feeling kind of I hope I'm not putting words in her mouth, but feeling kind of like hamstrung by by this teaching job that she had to now she's um writing songs. She's a songwriter and she's an entrepreneur and she's a she's a budding coach. And I remember we had a special topics class um, with M- Nicole Mueller, who um, is a a musician's coach um, and a harpist and like amazing improv improv harp player um and this participant had uh we got spread out into breakout rooms and she was in her breakout room with nathan and she reported to me later that just that having that presence she had never had a teacher listen to her that way and that was such an impactful moment for her and i see her now and she is on fire 
like she's taking a business course with Jennifer Rosenfeld. She's playing um, with her looping pedals. She's, <laughs> you know, and she, she's just like playing out loud, which is really exciting. Um, and I feel like we see that on all levels um, in, in VMC, particularly this iteration, I feel like has been, but all of them, we, we've seen it on all levels, people transforming, even if it's like the person who would never play in front of another person played in front of another person. Like that's miraculous and amazing. And I, it makes me so happy. For my part, I'll just add that uh, although I was initially kind of reticent to play in studio classes, I very quickly realized, oh, I'm, I'm paying a not insubstantial amount of money for this. I might as well take advantage of it. Like I'm not I'm not playing this half-baked Paganini caprice for the people listening to the class. I'm doing this for me cuz I'm the one paying for it. Yeah, it's it's an important uh it's an important factor. I mean, not um right. I I would say that everybody who's been part of the Virtuoso Master course has has had a great reason for doing it. And you know, it it's a good thing to to be selfish with that. Um, and I love that most of the people I work with are, you know, they're, they're, well, they're all out of school, but they're, you know, adults with real lives and starting to understand what is really important to them. You know, I often feel like I'm still figuring that out, but, you know, everyone who's been part of the Virtuoso Master course deepens their relationship to music because they, they figure out more what it means to them. Nobody's telling them they have to do it anymore. It's one of the things music school can't give you is what you're going to do with all this stuff. Mm. And I think just be, by virtue of the fact that that the people in, in VMC are sort of out of that environment, it, it does allow you the, the freedom to decide that for yourself as opposed to this might just be me in my own head, but but by the time I left my master's, I was like, okay, I can play in a symphony, maybe. I can do chamber music. I don't really want to do that. I can teach. I really don't want to do that. Um, <laughs> I can play in the studios. That's fun for about 15 minutes, and then it's a grind for four more hours. <laughs> so, like, those are those are kind of the four things that you leave music school with the idea that you can do, and none of them really fit me at all. Well, and, you know, when I teach my first instinct, although I, I think I'm growing, growing, expanding out of this, but, you know, I, I want to help people play better. And I, I think people do appreciate that. Um, I, I don't hide solutions to things. I don't play games. Um, but I'm not the best always and immediately at seeing the underlying motivations Um that people may have. So, you know, I appreciate, Kate, that you're there not only to observe and see, but also to, you know, talk and work directly uh, with folks so that <laughs> so that I can understand, you know, Eric playing in this class is not just about how well he plays the piece. You know, Eric playing, that's a big deal already. And, you know, that <laughs> that might inform the way that we work together and, you know, the, the things that I would encourage him to do in the future. Not that you need to, I mean, you didn't really even need direction because you, you were uh, self-motivating. Well, a skill that I only learned in my 40s, thankfully. 
I mean, that's that's part of it, right? Like, you're, it's not too late <laughs> to acquire the necessary skills. Yeah. I well, hope not. <laughs> <laughs> me too. I mean, Eric mentioned it a couple times, this, you graduate from music school and you feel like there's only a couple of roads that you can go to. And that if you can just get to the golden job that, that you guys have, it'll be then everything will be okay. And I even remember um, a friend of mine who's, who has a big job and had auditioned for a bigger seat in the big job and afterwards talking about how he felt like a bricklayer. And at the time, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, look at the hall you play in. Look at the conductor you work with. Look at the like salary you get. Look at all these things. Um, and... Yeah, that is a great track, and it is, I mean, you could tell me better, maybe a fulfilling. <laughs> Was this me, actually, you're talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and um, the idea that there's only a few things you can do with a music education, and actually, I have been training, studying since I was 10. I'm 46, and so 36 years. I have a really thorough music education really robust and I feel like I use it more working with our participants than I do when I go work in an orchestra or at the studio because it's not just the technique although working with Nathan it's it's really interesting I I feel like I haven't been practicing a ton (laughs) so I'm not like playing great um but I feel like my ear is better just because I'm listening to you all the time So, so I'm like, wow, this is out of tune. <laughs> but um, there's so I'm bringing not only the technical technical studies that I've spent most of my life working towards, but I'm also bringing the lifetime of questioning, fear, self doubt. Maybe this will make me feel like I'm good enough. Maybe this will make me, you know. The, and it's like really been a lifelong journey of trying to feel good enough. And it's amazing that stepping away from playing in orchestra has actually made me feel like I'm really good. <laughs> That's it's it makes complete sense. We're not stepping away yet, are we? <laughs> no, but it sounds nice. It sounds pretty great, doesn't it? Am I sorry? I don't mean to be like an advertisement for like you know just quit the violin <laughs> and then join the VMC. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I you know, it was, there's been all these articles about quiet quitting, mm-hmm. and I didn't even click on any of them, but I was like, yeah. So I mean, I'm going to play quieter. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to keep playing loud, but I'm going to do it less. I'm just going to play less frequently. I think that there <laughs> are probably people in full-time orchestra jobs who are quiet quitting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just means play quieter and quieter and quieter until you're not actually in the orchestra anymore. <laughs> well, that's the thing, actually, like showing up to work and being afraid of being heard, mm-hmm. which I, I, I imagine with a full-time job doesn't happen as much but as a freelancer as a sub in the back I mean I know the advice that was given me was like look interested and don't make any sound yeah I mean we laugh but it is a slippery slope I mean especially if you do start to lose confidence in you know how you're fitting in how you're handling you know difficult parts be they violin or or viola or whatever and you know you start Feeling like you're more, yeah, the ham and egger, <laughs> the, the blender. We all need still, to blend. Still making me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, 
eventually you you stop counting the rests quite as carefully you wait for someone else to come in mm. and then your forte becomes a mezzo and mm. you know it just you, you you stop taking any risks and then it's it's an uphill climb i think to to get it back and like that's part of the reason i think that i never loved performing is because it it does seem like this constant sort of at least for a freelancer this constant sort of expectation managing where mm. you've got the ideal like the platonic ideal of this amazing Mahler symphony in your head and then the reality of the thing that you're contributing to it with this job within these you know, like specific parameters and like okay this piece is amazing but also i don't want to draw any attention to myself which you know like automatically takes you out of it a little bit and it means you're not experiencing it really yeah the my my happiest places at work are when i'm like i'm really just it's going to sound horrible, but I, I'm 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 really focused on myself. Yeah, I want to hear more about the happiest times when you're. Yeah. Um, I think it's you know it's like when everything seems to be coming together. It's it's repertoire you love, and um, and you feel like you know really well, and it's a conductor that you trust and you want to do your best for, um, and it, somehow magically you're also able to tune out the distractions of anything you're hearing around you that you don't like or whatever, or, you know, or, um, or even like the bad thoughts about how, whether or not what you're doing is really making a difference or, you know, I mean, those are distractions in the end. And I think that if the best performances that I've had, you know, which in the end, it's funny because it's like, <laughs> that, that, that was a great performance. Like, what does that mean? That's really your thing, right? Like you're, the weird thing is a lot of the time you'll talk to other people and like, yeah, that was a great performance. That's always a nice feeling. Okay, I wasn't just imagining that. But in the end, it's really your perception. Um, but those things, and that's why it's, I wouldn't say it's rare, but it's its definitely like a, it feels like a really wonderful, treasured thing when it happens because it's not all the time that those things come together. So, I, you know, I think that's probably one of the more positive things one can say about being in an orchestra. If, if you, you know, if you can concentrate a lot on, on stuff like that that can happen yeah. you know but it doesn't happen all the time it's true and it i guess it can't be christmas every day <laughs> actually yeah. i do want to say something um we had a workout in the vmc we have um what nathan has called a weekly workout where it's a topic specific kind of broadcast style class where we do a deep dive into a, a particular um issue or you know, something relevant to playing. And Kirsten, who is, we have a whole episode about, was in town and she volunteered to be a sight reader. Mm. And it's probably my favorite workout out of the hundred plus that we have, partly because Kirsten is so game, you know, <laughs> like she was willing. So we, we put, I, and actually at that time, I, I had to learn this Verdi Otello for a gig. And so I told me <laughs> to make to make her play it and um nathan like what i what i think of when i'm when i'm sight reading is play the notes right and nathan kept um focusing on rhythm and dynamics and so um and i know that it's so scary to let go of playing notes correctly it's really really vulnerable to let go of playing notes correctly and i went down to rehearsal to sight read this this Otello with an orchestra and thinking about 
um, rhythm and dynamics instead of notes, I was like, oh my God, there's music happening. <laughs> it was actually kind of revelatory. Um, it's one of the coolest things about my job working with Nathan is that I actually get like the benefits of the participants <laughs> with them. Yeah, it's always crazy. Like Nathan just um, always has a really good answer. <laughs> You know, and whenever I say that, he was like, "Ah, I sound so annoying." But it's, it's not, <laughs> not like that. It's like, is that how you sound? <laughs> 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 yeah, oh, can't you're, actually do his voice. So that's you're like, the penguin from the Adam West Batman. <laughs> <laughs> Guide finger shift. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I think that. Um, it's one of those weird things about Nathan, though, that, uh, you know, you just you just really know that you, you can wonder aloud. We were just talking about this yesterday, right? You just sit there thinking it can be. In, I used to notice it in non-musical settings. It would be like, like, I wonder, you know, I wonder how many uh, millions of people, I don't know, how many mil- millions of people have uh, have flown between you know this this date and this date or something and you know nathan be like actually i was just reading the other day it's you know and you're like oh okay so like nathan knows the answer so much for amusing sitting around like you know just yeah and that's that's it's it's awesome though and you know there's been a lot of times when i had to prepare stuff actually i mean a lot of times is an underestimation i mean i'm Anytime I have to play something, there's always something that doesn't work with a fingering or, you know, or I'm making a squeak or I'm missing a harmonic or, you know, and at first it used to bother me because I would ask Nathan, he would always know and I would always do what he said and would always fix it and it would always really annoy me. (laughs) That is really annoying. But, you know, now I see, I've seen it so many times that it's not a fluke. It's not like a, you know, it's just like there's a very analytical um, way that he he thinks about things that is really efficient and really accurate <laughs> and it's like you know if I could think that way I would waste a lot less time <laughs> but I'm still wasting time but that's why I'm the before <laughs> no you're not the before Akiko I and I, I, I am no I mean and then you hear her play <laughs> but that's but that's my message too it's like that's the, the struggle is like it's still there you know and it's like it doesn't really matter, like, hmm. how you sound necessarily. It's like if you're having this issue in your head, then you, you, it's like you're trying to you know, rebuild every day. You pick up your instrument. That's It's like an impossible task. You know? It is. And so for Nathan, it's like he, he he's really good at, at showing you how not to do that. So Well, maybe that's one of the magical pieces of Stand Partners for Life is that, I mean, I think you're – when Nathan tells stories about you bringing warming up to him in tears, that <laughs> makes me feel better. Like that makes me feel like, oh my god, thank God I'm not. L- the no, only liter- one. literally, like I think I was also angry. Like, yeah, what is, no. What is this? And also, I really appreciate you talking about it. Doesn't matter how you play; it's how you're feeling. Because for anyone who hasn't heard Akiko play, like she is a goddess, like goddess violinist, and. Um, but I'm making the cringy face because it's like, well, I, I, you know, for me, it's just very hard to get up there and, you know, to do it is incredibly painful. So, yeah. Why do you keep doing it then? Well, it's very painful. 
<laughs> there, there must either be money or fun in there somewhere, <laughs> right. according to Or the hang. Well, I mean, the, yeah, the hang. Yeah. Yeah, we have two. Well, this is part of what's useful about this, I think, is because you grow up with the the complete fiction of, like, you hear about Nigel Kennedy going to his teacher and the teacher being like, I have nothing to teach you or whatever. Like, that's the narrative you get from no, I think everybody. my teacher said that too, but she meant it in the bad way. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like, she, li- she literally was like, what, what else do you want to do? <laughs> yeah, what do I have to teach you? <laughs> I actually got that from um, a teacher who's like, I know you could open your own catering business and freelance on the side. <laughs> but it turns out he was right. <laughs> yeah, what if uh, Ms. DeLay told me I could, she, she said, I said, maybe I want to be a writer. She's like, well, you're not going to make any money doing that. So I think she was like, well, you probably make about as much. <laughs> you stick with this, so whatever. But, but again, I mean, yeah, the message is like, it's a constant battle to, to just feel good enough, right? I mean, it's like, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. So I know some people cruise through it, but that's just. Is there really anyone who cruises? I think there's some people. I see them. <laughs> yeah, I see them. Who cruises? Let's let's list them. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know what they don't know. <laughs> and that's a, a huge, you know, like what a blessing, right? Do not. Must, must be nice. Must be, it must be nice. <laughs> the title of this podcast, it must be nice. Can we maybe close with any uh, final uh, final advice for uh, cruising through life with a stand partner for life? Um, would you like to, to, the viola side of the room can close with any words of wisdom? I mean, we didn't, we didn't tell this, but like the foundation of our courtship was viola duets. <laughs> like, That's true. Kate had a, a big repository of... <laughs> Viola duets and, and, and violin duets transposed for viola. But, uh, but yeah, that, that was the foundation of, of what we would do when we would first get together is we'd, we'd crack a bottle of wine, we'd make some food, and we'd play viola duets for pretty much all night. Wait, wait, this is when you were, like, not dating. You were, like, not dating. We were, we were not dating. And so we would get together once a week. We would cook. We would drink. And we would play viola duets. And... Oh my god! I remember the first time we played the bridge together, oh, and there's yeah, this like wow. one little harmonic, the bridge lament for two violas. Yeah, that is a that is a little gem of a piece, really. But Nathan was like, to wrap up, <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about how it is to be stand partners for no, life. No, I was gonna say I'm I'm glad you said how great a piece it is because just on the face of it, bridge lament for two violas sounds <laughs> like the saddest possible. That's a little, maybe a little on the nose in retrospect. <laughs> it, it's, it, sound, it sounds like a Bramall Toby punchline. <laughs> R.I.P. Um, you know, I, I think what, like, I haven't hung out with you guys before, and I notice one thing definitely in common is just, like, how much um, reverence, you know, we have for each other's, for, for each other, you know, and you guys. And that's, like, a very similar thing and um i can see how much that means to you guys and i think to us well as as musicians especially musicians in la i mean everybody is looking to screw you over all the time so if you can find somebody who actually (laughs) props you up then hooray for that it's like it's it's really great to see to have that counterpart to like my emotionality it's great to see somebody who can 
maybe depersonalize it a little and make it a little less about your good, your bad because of how you play. Uh, yeah, like again, there's there's so much of that innate emotional response rolled into it anyway that it's it's nice to be able to sort of uh, absent yourself from that a little bit. No, like Akiko said, it's great actually to to hang out in front of these microphones. It's it's pretty funny that that we're doing it this way. But thank <laughs> thank you so much for you know spending this time with us and coming over, enjoying the evening. Hmm. Thanks so much. This was really, really fun. And now we're going to jump in the pool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I know. It just took microphones to get us to open up to each other. And thanks, Akiko, for being back, too. Yay. <laughs> and please come back for more Zen Partners for Life. See you next time. <laughs>